Hello and welcome to episode two of the Riotous Rookies podcast, your source for all things Blood Bowl related. I am Jake and with me is my questionably sober co-host Richard. Hey folks, it's Richard. Um, excited to bring to you another episode of Riotous Rookies, the podcast that so far only has one bad episode. I don't know what you're referring to because we've never done a bad episode. We've only done a great episode and then now an even greater episode. Excellent point, Jake. I wish I shared your optimistic outlook on life. That's me. Real optimist. You know, what have we got on our agenda for today, Richard? Do you so, remember? Uh, today, I have not had that much to drink in the past 30 seconds. Um, <laughs> my, so today we'll have a tournament talk. Um, Jake and I both went to pumpkin bowl up in Lincoln uh, two weeks ago, and then I played at the GW Open event in Kansas City last weekend. So we'll be talking about that. Uh, Jake will have a star player spotlight on the best star player in the game, Bomber Drum. No spoilers. Spot. Oh, sorry. It's a, it'll be a surprise to everyone for the next twenty minutes. They'll have to wait in anticipation. That's fair. And then we'll have a skills discussion on some skills we think are underrated, both in league and tournaments, that people should be looking at over the obvious block guard, mighty blow type skills and then i think we'll round it out with a little discussion on uh local league stuff maybe uh hit how our our league teams are doing and then the uh the next segment of a league play for us um as our current season starts uh coming closer to an end well folks as richard alluded to i was unable to attend the gw open that was this past weekend here in kansas city i had some family stuff come up and i knew about it ahead of time so that changed my plans for pumpkin bowl in lincoln um, my original plan was to do grift dwarves at gw open and then i wanted to have a tournament ahead of time to play that in so i was going to take it to gw open but or I'm sorry, I was going to take it to Pumpkin Bowl. But since I was not going to be able to attend GW Open, I decided for Pumpkin Bowl not to subject all of the wonderful people of the area to Grift Dwarves any more than is absolutely necessary. So I decided to play the most wholesome team in Blood Bowl, which is Orcs. That is factually correct, and I cannot argue with that. I've had this discussion with people before, Richard. You can tell me if you think I'm wrong, but... Orcs are the most wholesome team in Blood Bowl. And here's why, right? So they start out with some block on their blitzers, but not too much block, only four of it, right? And, you know, their block pieces are limited to movement six, agility three. So it's not like, you know, they got like dark elf blitzers that are movement seven, agility two up with block, right? Then they've got some strength four, but only four of it. And they don't come with any stats. And they're movement five, they're agility four up. So it's not like they're going to be you know, very all that mobile, and it's only limited to four of them, right? You know, they got they got a thrower, you know, he's got sure hands, he's got pass, but he's only passing three up, he's not passing four up, he's movement five, and he's got animosity when he tries to throw the ball. So it's, you know, not, you know, not the most powerful thrower out there. You know, they've got your standard run-of-the-mill lineman, the most efficient lineman in the game, obviously, like, if there's one thing you wish you could do with your lineman other than adding a skill, it'd be like drop a movement, add an armor. That's like exactly what a lineman should do. And then they have a big guy, but it's the worst big guy in the troll. And they have goblins, but they can only take a maximum of four, and they don't have any sort of like special goblins, just normal, regular goblins. So 
that is my TED talk about why orcs are the most wholesome team in Blood Bowl. Orcs, yeah, they're a fantastic team to teach the game with, and there's one, it's one of the reasons that humans orcs is the correct starter for Blood Bowl. So I decided to roll with a pretty basic orc build. The tournament uh, specifics allowed you to basically over the course of the tournament, you would have a total of 10 skills. You just got six of them up front, and then you added in two skills after the first round and two skills after the second round. Um, you could do a swap like a secondary for two primaries in there, either like out of your initial ones or like in between rounds, you could add one secondary instead of two primaries. But I decided um, to roll with something just super simple since there was no restriction on duplicates. Um, I just rolled with block on all my black orcs and block on my troll for starting. So I had nine block. And when it was pretty simple orc roster, it was four blitzers, four black orcs. I'm sorry, biggins, as they are now called. Uh, I had a thrower, I had a lineman, I had an, a troll, and I had a goblin. So one of all of the uh, other ones other than uh, blitzers and biggins. And then I also had bomber dribble snot because he's just too much fun not to bring. And uh, it was a pretty good time. Uh, after round two, I added in guard to my troll. And I added in tackle to one of my blitzers. And then after round two, before round three, I added in a guard on two of my four biggins. So by the end of the tournament, I had three guards. And it was a very fun team. Um, I went two wins, one loss, no draws. Um, and so I kind of, you know, had a few takeaways. So my round one, I got to play against a really awesome guy who I'm 90% sure is from Omaha. His name's Austin, and he plays Lizardmen pretty much exclusively, has a really good-looking purple Lizards team. Didn't you play him at GW Open, Richard? Uh, no, I played him at Meeple. That's right, that's right. But we had a really good game. We had a game between Orcs and Lizards with no guard on the table whatsoever, so it was, like, super wholesome. So that was kind of, like, takeaway number one is, like, how wholesome Blood Bowl can be sometimes when there's no guard on the board. That one kind of was a back and forth one with uh, Bomber kind of being the uh, the difference maker in that game, uh, freeing up the ball for me to uh, to stop him from being able to score in the first half. And then I ended up getting a touchdown in the second half also to get a 2-0 win. But Bomber was just crucial in making that win happen. Round two was against a gentleman named Adam who's playing Skaven. And um, he got the ball. He two turn touchdown. I blew both of my team rerolls in order to try and stop him. Um, I had like a bomber bomb and a uh, 30 percenter to knock down a gutter runner. You know, the old like need a pow on two dice using a team reroll gives you a 30 percent chance to down him. But I didn't get it. And I also didn't get the bomber down. And so he scored a two-turn uh, two touchdown. So in my mind, I'm thinking like, all right, well, I'm like out of my, I used both my two rerolls in order to try and stop him from scoring. But at the same time, like all I have to do now is like in seven turns, go down and score against Skaven with Orcs. And then I get the ball in the second half so I can just 2-1 grind. You know, the, the classic 2-1 grind when somebody scores too fast on you. I accomplish the first part. I go down and score. The second part, uh, it's kind of you know, I'm, I don't like to go like super blow by blow on my games, but like it's germane to the de to the kind of the discussion about this, about what happens in this game, which is that he kicks off to me in the second half. The ball deviates uh, diagonal towards the line of scrimmage. He puts it in the sweet spot, 
and it goes basically on top of a blitzer. Then he rolls the kickoff event, and it's a blitz. So it's on the line of scrimmage with a blitz. Um, and it's my blitzer with tackle. He blitzes him with one of his storm vermin, uh, whatever you call them, blitzers. And he casualties out my, uh, my tackle blitzer, uh, puts a gutter runner on the ball, and catches it. And so my turn one, I go over there, and I, you know, I mark him up and stuff. I'm all up in his business where he you know, just caught the ball. And I blitz the gutter runner, I get a three-die block on it, I down it, knocks it down, and the ball pops out, lands on one of his other gutter runners who was standing uh, like in front of where that original gutter runner's like position was. And then it went to it, and um, he caught it. And at that point, I couldn't do anything else other than watch him uh, score a touchdown on turn one of the half when i got when i received the kickoff it was just one of those things you know so that was kind of like and then like the game eventually ended up being a 2-1 win for him i just you know i couldn't get one back and it was just one of those things where sometimes in blood bowl uh you don't have agency the ball scattered or deviated to the line of scrimmage and they roll the blitz and it's Skaven who have the ability where if they get even just, you know, two squares of movement, then the gutter runners can generate a, a one turn touchdown. Just one of those things. You know, it was a little frustrating to like watch it happen like at the time. You know, by the end of the game, like Adam and I were just like laughing and like joking around as he's like methodically like removing all of my orcs from the board. Like we finished up with like four casualties. He, he like casually out four of my players. I casually out none of his. And uh, but we were laughing and having a good time by the end of it because it was kind of just, you know, you can't control it. So what do you do? Uh, you can have one of two responses. You can either get really salty and you can get really, you know, unpleasant to play against or you can just except that that's how the game goes sometimes. If you play enough Blood Bowl, like you will have games where you get scored on and there's nothing that you could have done about it. So that was kind of the, the big one there. Uh, then I had a really good game against Terry playing as Nurgle. Um, Terry ran the tournament and did a very good job despite having some issues with the uh, tournament software, not wanting to cooperate with him. He got it cleared up in pretty good time and uh, did not let it face him too much he also didn't let it face him that the uh dice took away agency from him with uh removing three of his bloaters before he even got a turn you know it's uh we all have to deal with that kind of stuff sometimes in blood bowl you know whether it's uh our players being casualty removed whether it's you know opponents scoring on us without us being able to really do much about it or if it's tournament software crashing on you as the to nuffle plays you know cruel games on us and uh you just gotta let it roll off your chest Yep, that does happen sometimes, but the good news is that Nuffle, Nuffle does give back, and you will get to be the beneficiary of some of those games eventually, so there's always yeah. that. The league so far has been kind of that way for me. So, my pumpkin bowl, um, I played Amazons with Carla. Um, I was not motivated enough to, to paint my Zug the night before, so I played Carla. I played um, two blockers, two catchers, one thrower, I believe six line women in Carla. Um, with uh, two rerolls and a leader. Um, my initial skills were block on the blockers, the blitzers, leader on the thrower, and then I took wrestle on one line woman. I added guard in round two to both uh, blockers, and then I added um, diving catch and tackle to the blitzers in round three. 
So my round one, I played against Terry, who was the TO and Jake's round three opponent. Again, Terry, thank you for running the tournament. That was a good time. I won 2-0. I was able to get a hit on his ball carrier in the first half and then score the defensive touchdown. Um, and then I was able to score on my half. It's probably like a one and a half to zero, not a two to zero game, but I'll take it. Um, takeaways from that game are... Um, I didn't feel like I was put in a position where I had to block foul appearance models. So I was allowed to choose when to block foul appearance models based on when it generated value for me. And there wasn't a huge amount of risk of if I fail foul appearance on this model, my turn is just completely up shit Creek. Foul appearance is one of those skills where like every now and then it just comes in super clutch. For example, my game against Terry foul appearance, getting in places where, you know, just, Marking a ball carrier with a foul appearance player means that sometimes if your opponent tries to like blitz them off and they fail foul, foul appearance, they have to use a team reroll on that. Yep. And that it, he actually drained me. And I, you know, I, I was only playing two team rerolls, which was in hindsight was a mistake, but he actually drained both of my team rerolls on me having to reroll foul appearance attempts to blitz uh, people off my ball carrier. Um, I, I felt like I did a decent job protecting my ball carrier from being blitzed, but you know, sometimes you can't really stop your opponent from blitzing their way to mark your ball carrier at the very least. And then it is, puts the, you know, burden on you as the offensive player to free them up. And because I had to use my reels on those foul appearances, I actually did not end up scoring on the uh, drive that I received. It was interesting. But the important thing about foul appearance is that if you are the foul appearance player, you need to make sure you're putting those models in a position where your opponent has to take that risk. So my round two opponent was against Aaron Wisniewski. Spelled with one A, as as one a. Aaron Franklin likes to uh, very importantly point out. Yes. Uh, so Aaron is an incredibly good player from, I believe he's from Omaha also. Um, and he was playing Chorfs. Uh, so the game went surprisingly well for me, which meant I lost one nothing instead of a much higher number with Amazons against a very good player playing chores. I fucked up in the first half language. So then he scoop and scored on my, on his turn seven, the second half, uh, the game ended on turn five or six. It was a very good game. Uh, round three, I played Aaron Franklin who I drove up with, which is it's always super fun when, you know, you drive up with somebody and you play a practice game against them the night before. And it's like, well, you get to play them round three. It's like shit. Yeah. I lost three, nothing. My mistake in the first half is I started going hard for his skinks. Are you saying that you only made one mistake? Oh, I no, I that's the mistake that mattered. Uh, I <laughs> made just, other mistakes. But, I was just with you. Yes, I did make other mistakes. However, they were less relevant. What was your what was your big takeaway from that one? Make sure that you go after their skinks. If your strategy is I'm going to let the Lizardman player score and then in the second half, they'll then just stick with that and don't actually care about how fast they choose to score. Sure. So overall, Pumpkin Bowl was a good tournament. Uh, it was a fun time. Um, it's nice to have a tournament that's just like three hours away. You can drive up, drive back in a day. It was a really good time. And unfortunately, I did not get to go to the next weekend tournament of the GW Open. Uh, Richard, I have a couple questions for you about like the GW Open as a whole before we get into like the specifics about your games and what you kind of like took away from them. So first off, um, what did you think of like 
the overall like feel of the event did it feel like it was like very much so like a 40k convention with just some side events that were also there or did it seem like it was like games workshop trying to put on a more equitable event towards all of their games no it was equitable a uh, 40k is definitely the focus there was just under 200 players for the 40k event um and the way the hall was organized was um the um they had two large rooms at the Sheridan downtown um and 40k and a, there were a couple of tables for kill team had the main event and then blood bowl and age of sigmar was on the side hall and i i don't know how many people were there for age of sigmar off the top of my head but it was a good showing like it was definitely a people are here to play games workshop games even though 40k was the main focus not this was a 40k tournament and also i guess there's five people here for the other games Gotcha. Uh, they gave away a neoprene blood bowl pitch that had like the hurricane logo that they were using for the uh, the GW Open in, in Kansas City. What did you think of that pitch? Is it like is it a high quality neoprene pitch? Is it a little bit thinner? Like is it would will you use it for future games? Do you think I will use it? Um, it is a bit thinner. My real complaint about the pitch is that the giant blood bowl logo on the side could be used for more reference or the dugouts could be bigger. So that's really my complaint about the pitch, but it's fine. Do you like uh, your chaos cut pitch more? Yes, I do like the chaos cut pitch significantly more. Um, those were, uh, I want to say FLG did the U S open pitches and then maelstrom games does the chaos cut pitches and the maelstrom product is definitely better. You know what pitch I still I'm a big fan of is my deep cut studio neoprene pitch. It just, I don't know the feel of it, the design of the uh, reference tables and the dugouts and like everything about it. I'm just a huge fan. So moving into your team that you took, you decided to take Amazon's, but you, instead of doing uh, Carla, like you did at pumpkin bowl, you went with glottal stop. If I remember correctly. I did glo go with Glottal Stop. Um, it, my logic on that was it's a 1200 TV tournament and I'm going to get to play Giant Lizard. So my team build was Glottal Stop. I had two blockers, one with block and guard, one with just block. Two blitzers, one was block tackle, the other was dirty player sneaky get. And then I'll circle back to that model in our skill segment later. I had a thrower with leader um, and then two line women with wrestle. So did you find yourself needing to use a glottal stop at all? Like as you were, you know, going about your, your day, I guess uh, in English, we probably use the glottal stop most in like the, the center sound in uh Oh is like, that's like a glottal stop, right? If, am I remembering my, my linguistics correctly where the glottal Somewhat. stop is like that little, like, Oh type sound right so did you have to say uh-oh a whole lot over the course of that tournament um i did not say uh-oh there were a lot more four letter words <laughs> so you didn't use the glottal stop I in order to express your did. displeasure you use the but glottal stop to make no. other people express displeasure yes. i did not yes uh glottal stop actually did well um having a strength six big guy with prehensile tail and stand firm is a royal pain in the ass to move, and he eats space incredibly well. How does he eat space when he, the miniature's mouth is tied shut? I was under the impression that like alligators and crocodiles couldn't really open their jaws when it's tied shut. 
that is an excellent point. Uh, he hit the space around him with his tail. Um, okay. Sorry. Well. I'm just being pedantic, but I, these are really important questions that our listeners Your pedantry care about. Is appreciated. So for the news that our listeners do care about, uh, I did remove two <laughs> models with glottal stop special rule. So that made me happy. Nice. Yes. It's always good when, um, you get to animal savagery and then hit your opponent's model and then remove a second model on one turn. So general thoughts on glottal stop are having a frenzy piece is important. Um, having a prehensile tail big guy on Amazons is a great way to eat space. Overall, um, I it's hard to justify 270 on this model um, outside of a league when you're inducing him instead of paying for him. Uh, he doesn't have block. Uh, he did generate a lot of value. He removed probably three to five models the hard way and then sideline pushed another three models, even though those didn't convert. So having the frenzy model is important and having the prehensile tail stand for a big guy to eat space and make people dodge out on reduced dodges is great. Yeah. But I'm not sure I would play him in a future tournament, especially at a lower team value. Um, I would likely just run Zug and an extra reroll. That's fair. So uh, let's do the uh, kind of the, I guess, the quicker versions of all your games. Since it was a six round tournament, we could spend a lot of time talking about your specific games. But give me the uh, give me the the quick and dirty version of your games and what your biggest takeaway from each was. So my round one game was against Jen from Oklahoma. Um, she was playing Ogres, which with Deep Root, which was, I believe, all of the Ogres, but one had block one was a leader and then i don't remember what the other skill was so takeaway from this game is that the dirty player uh sneaky get blitzer is very good um she removed four models over the course of the tournament um starting with the brute nice that's awesome yeah i was nuffle allowed me to ko an ogre and then foul out deep root early in the game and then it kind of just went from there. Um, so that was my own game. Um, what was the final score there? Uh, one zero. Okay. Then round two, I played against Nancy from Virginia, who was playing Griff Norse and won the tournament. It's a good game against a very good player. Um, I believe I received, I was able to knock out two or three models, but she was able to play. She played fantastic defense the whole game. Um, I fucked up a bit of positioning in the first half. And so I had to roll a bunch of dice to try and score and then just was out of rerolls. Yeah, it happens. And no, it happens. And then the second half, I, one of my weaknesses as a player is I will get too greedy on pulling whoever's playing safety three to two to three squares too far over the second half. And then she punished me for that. And then Griff was able to, you know, do Griff things and score on her turn seven. So I lost the game one zero. Uh, that was a fantastic game, and I look forward to the rematch. What did you think of Griff Norse? It's really fucking good. It's a fantastic list. Um, you lose your Yeti to play it, but you end up getting to use your Valkyries. Is either you basically pick up a third Super Valkyrie and Griff, or your Valkyries can go attack ball carries and hunt down models since they have big guys since they have Dauntless and Strip Ball. So right. it allows you. It opens up a large amount of flexibility in how you play that team. Nice. Round three. Round three was against Lizardman player. It was Seth from, I believe, Utah. Uh, he had a fantastic display board. Um, it was a white Lizardman team, and then he had a display board with like with a spawning pool and a pyramid. 
I remember seeing the pictures of it, and it was very impressive. So it was a 1-1 draw. Um, this is the game I remember the least about. Sorry, Seth. Um, I stunned a ridiculous amount of lizards. I probably was breaking armor at like 40% on armor 10 models. Wow. But he was able to score early, and then I was able to... I don't remember if I scored in the first or the second half, but uh, the interesting thing about his list is he had two lizards with Frenzy, which greatly affected how I was able to play the game. Yeah. Um, he had Frenzy Juggernaut and Frenzy Tackle, I believe. Um, so it's just like when you're not allowed to stay within two of either sideline, it's a huge problem. But uh, the end of the game just devolved into a giant scrum of like Croxagore and Glottal Stop eating all the space in the middle of the table, and then nobody was allowed to move the ball out. So, gotcha. Was there anything like any sort of takeaway that you remember most from that game? I remember that he protected his skinks incredibly well, and that made it challenging. My round four was against Pox, um, also from Virginia, uh, playing Skaven. His list definitely stood out most because it was block on two gutter runners, guard on two blitzers, surehand strip ball on the other gutter runner, and then a blodge rat ogre. Interesting. Um, so game started out fine. I won the roll to kick off, and I chose to kick. Pox scored in three turns, which is roughly what I want. Um, and then on my drive, uh, I rolled like a God and just blocked a rat, killed a rat. Um, so I was able to remove enough models and to, and then he played fantastic defense for only having seven or eight models. Um, so I had to work to score without rolling go for it's on my turn eight. And then the second half I was, I was up so many models that I was able to continue to remove more models. Um, you got yeah. the snowball effect going and you were able to complete the 2-1 yeah, grind. Yeah, I was able to complete the 2-1 grind. Um, just snowballed really hard. Yeah, and that's, you know, when I'm playing against Skaven teams, a lot of times that is kind of my goal because ultimately it is going to be the rare game that you're going to keep Skaven out of the end zone completely. So if you can force them to score quickly whenever they receive the ball, then you really can set yourself up for the 2-1 grind. Yep, and then... Up until this point, uh, I had completed my goal of this tournament, which is to not have to play against dwarfs or chores. And then in round five, that ended. I played against Dave, who's a member of the GW events team. Um, he was playing dwarfs. Um, he had two of each positional except runner. Um, his runner had blodge. He had three guards, three mighty blows. Um, and then... Acorn the squirrel, right? His acorn model was fantastic. It was... Uh, I believe it's the small like squirrel from one of the treatment kits. And there was a night haunt model behind it, um, which was like a I, I'm not familiar with the Sigma range, but it was really cool because you got the squirrel with covered in blood and there's just like this giant ass ghost with claws behind it. Um, so that was really cool. Huh, that is cool. And I remember correctly, he was in the running for most casualties going into your game, right? He had like 20 something. He had 21 going into our game. Um, Jeez. So. Yeah, so he won the roll to kick, which um, was not ideal for me. Let's put it that way. The good news is that I rolled perfect defense, so I was able to reset up my defense and make it harder for him to score. I immediately started hunting down Acorn because you can't let Acorn live because he'll just remove a model every turn, even though Claws don't do as much unless he decides to be a legend and go for Glottal Stop. <laughs> I... Honestly, I've never seen Acorn do anything in any of my games. He always like either gets killed or gets himself killed on like rolling both downs uh, or something. Uh, he got stunned 
he spent most of the game stunned and then got KO'd. So, gotcha. uh, but he did knock out, he did stun one model and knock out one model. On my turn two, I made a mistake and took a one die block that ironically ended up an advantage for me. Um, so I took a one die block with a line woman without wrestle and a dwarf. I was like, whatever. Um, and this was on the sidelines. She was three from the sidelines. So, I fail my block, or I roll them both down, so I fall down. Um, he doesn't, he's a dwarf. And then he ends up coming around that way, and then because he chooses to go around and extend and try and use that dwarf as a screen, um, two turns after that, I'm able to get a one-die block with uh, my tackle blitzer on his ball carrier. And then Ooh. from there, the first half develops into a... There's basically a sideline scrum by his ball. Um, I'm able to get the ball out, and then my ball carrier and my leader just slowly like do the long end around the board and then set up to score on turn eight. And then the sideline scrum is just models taking turns, pushing each other off the sideline. So um, second half, I get the ball, and he gets a perfect defense. Takeaway here is I put two line women on the line that shouldn't have been on the line. Because I wanted to immediately start attacking with Glottal, and then I got punished when he rolled perfect defense, um, and then failed to pick up the ball. So it was a good game. He ended up getting four Kaz. My my Blitzer got thrown out, um, unfortunately, when she fouled, and it was only a stun. But it was a one-one draw. And it was a good game. That's a rough feeling as to like have someone sent off when you only stun them. It's fine. Uh, she. With your sneak she got hits. sent off twice, which is fine. So then my round six game was against Justin from South Dakota. Um, had a very well-painted Norse team with purple armor. It was max positionals and a Yeti. Um, no star player, three rerolls. We rolled pitch invasion for the kickoff event, and I won the roll, which immediately put him down. Um, and I received in the first half. So I start removing models. So he's just down seven. So I just kind of come around twice. Um, That's what she said. Nice. So I reverse twice um, just so I can play attrition for longer. And I probably stalled too long. Um, takeaways from this game are um, I greedy rerolled a glottal stop dub skulls because his Yeti had a block. And then spinning the reroll there was the mistake. I didn't get the reroll with loner, but it wouldn't have mattered. Spinning the reroll was the mistake. And then. Does that cost you on trying to go yes, for it? Yes, I tripwired on my second go for it. Yeah. And then I ended up in a position where the more conservative play that I took was to, he was able to get me to spin my other reroll in the first half, picking up the ball. So in that game, or like when you use the reroll with Glottal Stop, I'm not sure if you were like aware of the way that the rules interaction work. I don't know if you were specifically worried about his Yeti being able to claw you, but claw only works on a block action performed no, by that player. No, it was not the claw. It was not because of claws. It was just, I want to hit something with my giant lizard. Especially yeah. when I only and that makes sense. eight to break armor. Yeah. You know, the uh, the big guys are there to, you know, one of the advantage of a big guy like Glottal Stop is that he is a armor 10 up thick skull piece. It's very unlikely that uh, him getting knocked down actually results in any negative yep. things happening. Yep. So I put myself in a position where I fouled one of his models out. So instead of having optimal screening position, one of my line women was um, two squares off of that to make his Ulf Warner go around my tackle zones instead of screening him out and to also provide a screen against the rest of his list if I get sent off on the foul. Um, and then he was able to hit my ball carrier 
uh, with a dodge, go for it, go for it block. So I had to spend my second reroll picking up the ball so I didn't have one for the tripwire. Um, second half was, I don't really remember the second half that well. It was the end of a very long day, but uh, Justin was a fun opponent. Um, is And that game ended in what zero, score? Zero-zero draw, as Nuffle intended. And so that puts you at, what, two wins, three draws, and one loss on the weekend? Well, I would say that a six-round tournament with only one loss in it is a successful weekend, no matter how you slice it. I agree with that. It was a fun time. Uh, Shout out to James from Florida for running the event. Um, He will be running Chaos Cup going forward. Um, It was a well-run event. Um, We started on time. We finished early. Um, That's always good, especially in a long event. And it was a good time. Uh, Everybody there was a good opponent. Uh, Met didn't get to meet everybody, but... um, Did uh, Aaron Aaron Franklin did not go, did he? He also had family stuff. You know, I love my family and I love my wife and she is, you know, very understanding. I've got two young kids, you know, a five-year-old and about to turn three-year-old. And for having two young children, she's very understanding about the amount of like gaming that I get to go do. But the reality is, is that there's just times where it just doesn't work out. Uh, In that case, if you don't have anything else to add on GW Open. I do want to plug a couple of upcoming events, though, um, before we move on. Yeah, for sure. um, believe coming up is uh nuffleween the weekend of november 12th in oklahoma yeah i was been meaning to talk to you about are we going to that i do not think i can justify going to it um okay it is being you know being in oklahoma city we would need to like drive down the night before get a hotel and then we would either need to accept getting home very late or get a hotel that night because it is a four rounder So it won't be ending until like yeah. probably 7.30-ish. Yeah, the six-hour drive on Sunday is not sure. I'm not sure I can get away with that with my hockey schedule. Makes sense. And then uh, I believe in Texas, there is the Winter Solstice Slaughter. Uh, um, it's part of the Scars Blood Bowl circuit. Uh, Brad that I met at GW Open mentioned that event. So if you're, it's just south of Austin. So if you're able to travel there, it's the weekend of December 4th. It sounds like a good time and you should head up there. Nice. I would love to go to Nuffleween. The build is a little uh, slim for my taste. It's a 1100 build, which does make things very challenging. But I would really like to go. Yeah, I'd like to go. I'm just I don't think I can slice it with hockey. That's fair. So in that case, if uh, if we don't have any more tournament talk, um, I want to move on to my star player. That sounds good. So the purpose of this star player spotlight is to extol the virtues of the one and only bomber Dribblestot, the explosive loving goblin who is like a bomber, only better. One of the things that makes bomber Dribblesnot great, right? And there's a number of things that make bomber Dribblesnot great, but you have to look at the fact that he has accurate. And it seems like such a small thing for somebody to give, oh, you just get plus one to your, uh, to your passing rolls, which means that if it's a short pass, or I should say a quick pass, then with your you know passing three plus stat that you get to be accurate on a two up. That's awesome. But what's more important than that is that because he's accurate, the short passes uh, that would normally incur the minus one penalty, the accurate offsets that minus one penalty. So if you roll the two on the short pass, it is a inaccurate bomb instead of a wildly inaccurate bomb, which is a big deal. Because even though a wildly inaccurate bomb can still go pretty far from where you want it to go, I mean, it can go three squares in the same direction and end up, you know, in disastrous places for you, a wildly inaccurate bomb is completely and totally unpredictable. It can go in any direction on the D8, 
and it can go any number of squares from one to six. So it is much more likely to result in, you know, absolute horrific things happening to your team than something, say, where you throw a bomb towards a semi-isolated, you know, position that even if it uh, drifts around a little bit, is still going to catch some enemy players in its blast radius. So that's, you know, number one, right? Then, of course, the fact that he is accurate and has the passing three up means that he does get to throw the quick passes on the two up, which is a very big deal, right? He is precise. To go along with being precise is his Kaboom special rule, where typically with the Bombardier, if somebody catches the bomb, then you roll a d6, and if it's a one through three, then they get to throw the bomb again. On the four up, it still blows up, but there's a 50-50 chance that then they can re-throw it. Bomber Dribblestunt says once per game, you just don't even make that roll and make it automatically explode as if you'd roll the four up on that roll, which is huge for when you, you know, pick out an opposing ball carrier and you just say, hey, hold this. And you roll your two or you more likely, you know, you roll your three and they just go down. They can, you, you can tell them like, hey, you can make your agility roll to catch it. It's not going to matter. It's a pretty good feeling. Uh, for me, I'm sure my opponents really don't enjoy it very much, right? Uh, Richard, you've been on the receiving end of me playing Bomber a couple times now. What are uh, what are your thoughts? Uh, so Bomber is 50k to make your opponent play the game in a completely different way. Played against Bomber in both tournaments, actually. Uh, Aaron Wojnowski had him in Chorfs, and uh, Pox had it in the Skaven list. They were playing, um, like, yeah, it's just if your opponent has Bomber, it's like, okay, I count out six and four from Bomber, and it's like, okay... Uh, I'm going to make you throw either at max or right in front of me. And then it also means that depending on how well you can protect him, I'm going to send a model to kill Bomber because I don't think I have a choice. And so you get to affect your opponent's positioning, and then you also get to commit one of the resources to trying to kill Bomber for only a 50k model, which is absurd. We're gonna, we might touch on like November FAQ. But I wouldn't be shocked to see Bomber Dribbles not get a price increase in the November FAQ. I don't want him to get a price increase because I love taking him at every opportunity. But I would not be surprised to see him go up in cost. Well, uh, that's a you know pretty close to all I have you know to say about Bomber because really all the talking that needs to be done, Bomber does with his bombs, you know. And so when people get across the table from me against my bomber, you know, there's some things I like to do with him. I really like to deploy bomber on defense rather than on offense, even though he's great at opening up holes in my opponent's, you know, lines for me to exploit. I, you know, and on offense, you can control how quickly you score to be able to potentially keep bomber dribbles not on the field for a longer period of time due to his secret weapon rule. That being said, I feel like he's more impactful on defense where he makes your opponent have to play around him with his ball, with their ball carrier in a very different way than when they have a little bit more, I guess, flexibility of movement when they're on defense. When they're on offense, they kind of, I guess, are not necessarily forced to bunch up, but there are ways of playing defense in a way that kind of does force your opponent to bunch up. So You take away their ability to play loose screens on offense with bomber well you don't take away their ability but if they play a very loose screen around their ball carry then that could fall apart at any moment right because if they play tightly you bomb the you bomb the cage if they play loose 
you bomb the key piece that is, you know, holding down a lane that's going to stop you from being able to get a blitz off on the ball carrier. Either way, you know, Bomber's just great. He's tremendous amounts of fun to use. And if you've never played a game using Bomber Dribble Snot, I highly encourage you to at least give him a shot. So that's my star player spotlight on one Bomber Dribble Snot. Thanks for that, Jake. It's good talk. Um... We're going to talk about some skills next, right? Yep. So um, each of us are going to have three skills that we think are underused. I'm not sure uh, if not underused, underused is the right word because, you know, some of these are very, very common skills. But I guess in my mind, you know, when we were talking about this segment, my thought was like, so you have like your big four skills, right? So block, dodge, mighty blow guard. These are typically the first four skills that if you have a like duplicates limit on a tournament uh depending on the team you're playing you're filling out dodge first you're filling out block first you know if you're playing like a bash team you're filling out all of your guards first if you're you know wanting to play a you know more bashy you know type of style there's a good chance you're filling out your mighty blows as well on like your duplicate if it's like a three three duplicates limit you know there's a good chance you're filling out guard and mighty blow with you know something like dwarves or chaos dwarves or orcs something like that so those are the kind of the big four in my mind right but outside of those big four is what are the skills that are really important to consider for both tournament play and also for developing your league team yep do you want to we can maybe each take turns doing one sounds good cool you want to go first? Sure. So the first skill that I don't see taken uh, that often, usually I'll see it in dwarf teams on tournaments, is kick. It's a skill that's near and dear to my heart. Um, kick um, is, I would consider it a luxury skill, um, where it's something you don't need to play the game, but when you have it, it changes how you play the game significantly. Um going from having to kick to the sweet spot or one off the sweet spot most of the time to being able to either try and pin them in the corner or more importantly, kick short if you need to try and aggressively take the ball away from them. It just gives you options that don't normally exist in Blood Bowl. Now, when it comes to, you know, where you position your kicker or the, the, when you position the ball when you're kicking, you know, I've kind of see like three different schools of thought, right? Is like, number one, I see people, generally speaking, you'll go to one of the corners, right? And I see people going like four squares in from the corner so that it can't go out of bounds unless there's like a changing weather. So even if you roll a six on the distance and it bounces to that side, that'll still just put it like on the sideline or in the end zone. I also, for, for me personally, I come three in from the corner so that the only way in which it can be a touchback is to roll a six for the distance and also bounce out of bounds. Uh, how do you tend to go the corner kicks, uh, Richard? I kick three off because it's the it's roughly the same chance as a touchback on a normal kickoff, and I gain advantage um, if I don't roll the six in the bad deviate. Um, that said, if you can't, um, and then I'll adjust to four back if I can't afford the touchback, if it's like a two-turn touchdown situation. That's fair. Then one thing I've also seen some people do is when they have kick, and I see this with Wood Elf teams, is they actually kick the ball to a close corner because a lot of times people don't deploy as many, you know, players for the close. They see somebody that has a kick, so they tend to deploy further back, and then they'll put it up close to the close to the line of scrimmage, and then that gives a player who has the potential ability to you know, quickly dash in to make a quick turnover 
um, or I should say they can like, you know, quickly sack the ball, or if they were to roll a blitz, then that can allow them to gain possession of the ball in kind of a cheeky way. That's the other way I've seen it done. Yep. Yes. Um, that's really the advantage of kick. I think is it lets you kick short either with a team that has fast models. Like if you have gutter runners, um, pick an elf model, or, um, if you have somebody like Griff, you can kick short and then you can put immense pressure if they don't pick up the ball. Um, right. And that's a big thing too, is where like, if you kick it like close to the line of scrimmage, if they fail the ball pickup role, it is disastrous for them. Yeah. I, I, someday I really want to do this to like a Tomb Kings player. I've never played against a Tomb Kings team when I've had kick, but I would love to do a situation where I kick it short and then they have to make the 75%er to pick up the ball. And like 25% of the time, it's just real, real bad. It's a really useful skill, and I wish uh, people would... Well, actually, I don't wish people would take it more because I prefer to not play against kick <laughs> teams. But it's a good skill, and you should take it. Uh, yeah. What's your first skill, Jake? So the first one I wanted to talk about is Wrestle. Uh, wrestle is kind of maligned sometimes as just being, you know, the worst version of block. You know, I've heard people say like, oh, you know, the only, you know, good use for Wrestle is if you, you know, random roll it with alignment in the league, then, you know, it can be good. Like, or like, oh, well, you know, maybe I'll have one Wrestle player with strip ball to, you know, give me a really good ball sacker. But the reality is, is that Wrestle is really, really important um, against teams that have mass block because if somebody has a ton of block on their team, then both down results are not putting them down. And specifically where this is really, really good is against dwarf teams, right? Because if you are wrestling down a dwarf lineman, then in order for them to stand up, that takes three of their four movement and they're not going to be able to go very far. Whereas if you have like a movement six or seven player with wrestle, then you still have plenty of movement in future, you know, in, in future turns to get up and be able to, you know, gain a positioning advantage on them. It's not quite as good as knocking them down, but it's, you know, much, much, much better than sitting there and double, you know, both down block skill where you just, you know, punch each other and stay standing. And at that point, you're kind of up shit creek a little bit because you're standing base to base with a dwarf. And chances are the dwarf is going to have friends because they tend to clump up. So you, because you can gain positioning advantages on slow block spamming teams, wrestle can be super duper important. It's also great in that, you know, I have, for example, on my Chaos Dwarf team for my league, two of my hobgoblins have randomed wrestle. And I have not shied away at all from throwing one die blocks with these guys um, against players that have block, specifically, you know, people that are slower. And then also it makes me super happy to throw two die blocks with them against people that have the block skill because I then have a 75% chance of that player going down. Even if my own player goes down, a lot of times my biggest concern is, you know, having the player that I am blocking be on the ground to open up lanes, to enable other plays, to clear up tackle zones for assists on other more important blocks, things like that. If you absolutely need to put a player on the ground and the armor roll is a lot less important than them just not being standing, then 
you know, Wrestle is absolutely fantastic. A lot of great points there. To add to that, I think that Wrestle is better when you are being blocked than when you are blocking by a lot. That's also a great point. Especially when you're going into a mass block team like Dwarfs, that's Brawly. A lot of the times the Dwarf coach won't care if they roll a boat down and you also have block because they're just standing there and you're going to stare at each other. But if when your blocks go to one and nine for your dwarf to no longer be standing there, that costs you a huge amount of positioning on your turn because it both can open up a lane for me. If you're blocking with a guard and your guard falls down, that's disastrous. And then a lot of the teams that take wrestle are going to be speed six and seven models. So you block me on your turn and then you're no longer standing there. So I stand up and move three. And then on your turn, you stand up and move one. That's really bad for you. Right. And then not to mention, you know, the synergies with players that have jump up, for example, where, you know, yeah, if your opponent wrestles you down on, if you have wrestle and jump up, your opponent wrestles you down on their turn, on your turn, you jump up as if nothing happened at all. Then you get the other combo with like strip ball. You know, it's a very common thing to have a ball sacker that you want to put wrestle strip ball on, because if you go for a ball carrier, you are guaranteed, if they don't have sure hands, right? you are guaranteed four out of six results on the die get the ball off of their ball carrier, which is crazy. Like if your opponent is not running sure hands and you have wrestle strip ball, that ball's as good as out. Yep. Which brings us to your next one, right? Yes. So I have a strip ball on this list, which is apparently more popular than I thought. But, um, since I've been playing Norse in League, um, Strip Ball is just a really nice skill to have because then uh, it takes your one-die blocks on ball carriers from terrible into acceptable. Because um, if you can block their ball carrier, you're probably taking a one-die block on them. And then instead of having to roll a power stumbles if they don't have dodge, it's, okay, now half of the die results are good, and if you don't have block, I'm okay with falling down if you fall down. Um, yeah. And it just changes the way your opponent plays. Um, like, the reason my opponent was able to get an Ulf block on my ball carry in my round six game at the US Open was because I needed the safety screen against his Valkyrie because I can't let I can't let your Valkyrie come near my ball carrier because I don't have sure hands. Absolutely. And it affects the way your opponent plays in ways that will eventually generate long-term advantage for you. To go along with that, though, is, you know, the fact that there's obviously the inbuilt counter to strip ball, where if somebody has the sure hand skill or the monstrous mouth skill, then strip ball doesn't work against them. And sure hands is a starting skill on a number of players throughout the game. You know, not all the throwers have it, but a good portion of the throwers in the game have the sure hand skill starting out. But that being said, you know, if there's a whole lot of instances where, you know, those players get hurt, those players, you know, hand the ball off because they're threatened, you know, and they put it on other players that are making their way up the pitch. Skaven gutter runners. I don't think I've ever once seen a Skaven gutter runner with sure hands on them. And, you know, the number of times that I've, you know, two die blocked a Skaven gutter runner needing a pow in order to put them down and not getting it even with a team reroll. And if I had strip ball in there, boom, that ball's mine. No, it's a really nice skill. Generally, the ball carriers without a decent passing skill don't have sure hands. And it's a great way to get the ball out. Um, so do you want to go ahead and talk about your next skill, Jake? Yeah, my uh, second one that I had written down is probably not something that most people are unaware of. But it's definitely something that everybody should be trying to get as much use of out of 
as possible, and that is Sneaky Git. For veteran Blood Bowl players, Sneaky Git underwent a revision in the 2020 edition of the rules, where it used to just say that, you know, on a foul action, that you were not caught on, on the armor roll unless it broke armor. It got better in two different ways, plus the fact that fouling got better, right? So first off, Sneaky Git now works where you just can't get caught on the armor roll whatsoever. Like doubles on the armor roll don't mean anything, even if you break armor. Doubles only matter on the injury roll. So it takes your chances of getting caught, you know, from being one in six period to if you don't break armor, 0%. And then if you do break armor, then you have the one in six of rolling doubles. Uh, the other part of it is that after you commit the foul, if you have remaining movement, you can finish your movement. So if you put it on a you know valuable piece like a you know gutter runner, for example, then you can actually go up, do the foul, and move yourself back to safety so that your opponent can't target your fouler, who is you know a really juicy target because they're generating removals. The fact that fouling got better because guard now works on fouls in 2020 when it didn't before is also something that uh, is really worth considering because that can let you get more assists on your armor roll, which makes the value of fouling go up, 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 especially when you combo with dirty player, because if you can, through the power of friendship, break armor without using your dirty player skill, that lets you apply your dirty player skill to the injury roll to where even if you get caught on the injury roll, then you have a, you know, it shifts the percentage chance of getting a removal from being, you know, the uh, needing the 41.66% chance to get the 8 plus to getting that, you know, 58 point, what is it, Richard? 58 point something? It's 58 percent. and change. Okay, whatever it is. But it literally, you just say thank you for the extra 17% chance to actually get an, a removal. If you have Dirty Player Sneaky Git, like, it's a big deal. And your player will not get sent off nearly as much as you think. Because, like, if you, again, like, if you don't break the armor, it doesn't matter if you roll doubles, then, you know, and even if you do break the armor and roll doubles, you're still not sent off. So very, very good skill. Got even a already good skill, got even better in the 2020 version of the rules. If you have a player that has access to both general and agility on primaries, you know, things like your ghouls, things like your gutter runners, things like, oh, I don't know, every single elf, then the dirty player stinky get combo should be one of the first things that you look at as far as development goes. Yeah, it's a good breakdown. Um, it's underrated. Um, I don't think I've seen it played against me yet, and I'm kind of surprised. Um, I played it myself at the GW Open, and I will say it worked out fantastically. I think I removed five models um, over the tournament with my Fowler, which is a good return. Five models removed, getting sent off twice is a good trade, I think. Do you uh, also maybe remember, I don't know if you like... I'm sure you didn't record it, but do you have like an impression about the number of times that you, you know, like broke armor and stunned somebody and still didn't get sent off? I got sent off on a stun twice. Uh, both times I got sent off were on stuns because it was a foul. It was. Were there very many times that you were able to successfully stun them but did not get sent off? Uh, yeah. Um, I want to say I fouled eight to 10 times over the course of the tournament. So. Um, there were about five Kaz or KOs. Um, then there were two send-off stuns, and then the rest were all stuns, I believe. So that, like, Whatever. right there, like, even if you don't, you know, even if you don't get a removal, the fact of this is that, like, 
if you break their armor, you still have a pretty low chance of actually getting sent off. Whereas, like, if you break armor, they are getting at the very least stunned and missing a turn. So there's definitely value. Yep. Uh, that's about all I got on uh, Sneaky Git. Unless you got some more, we can move on to your third one. Let's move on to Sure Hands. So my third one is Sure Hands. And this is not taking a sure hands model. This is taking sure hands as a skill when you don't have a built-in sure hands ball carrier. So there's the advantage of strip ball, which we kind of covered when we talked about strip ball. Um, so you're immune to strip ball, um, which means that if somebody else is taking strip ball, you're negating that. You're actually not immune to strip ball. If somebody hypnotic gazes you to make you lose your tackle zones and then strips the ball. Yes. um, You usually have bigger problems than like being eaten by a vampire. Um, Right. If, yeah, if somebody's getting a hypnotic gaze player onto your ball carrier, you probably have bigger problems. The reason I've looked for it in, in hindsight, I would have considered taking this at the GW open in return for dropping a wrestle line woman is it removes the decision that you get put into on turn one. A lot of times where it's, do I spend this team reroll to pick up the ball? And when you're playing against faster teams or fast star players like Griff, you can't afford to fuck up picking up the ball. So because otherwise they'll be either next to the ball or on the ball. And instead of you setting up your drive, it's, well, now I have to drop three models back or I have to drop two more models back to take the ball away from them. So I'm going to lose on the line. And that's the best case scenario where they don't score. The worst case scenario is you just get scored on. Right. And, you know, you and I had a game where it was a practice game with your Amazons against me playing doors because you wanted to kind of try that out and you had two separate times in which you failed a ball pickup on a kickoff and i just went for the ball yeah that situation did come up against nancy playing norse where like having played that in a practice game it's like okay i have to spin griff's on the table i have to spin this reroll and i was lucky enough that i picked up the ball instead of you know the ball falling out and griff eating my lunch but yeah it's definitely a good skill to have for the reroll insurance where you're not put in that position against fast opponents Cool. Not only is it getting the higher percentage chance to pick up the ball, but then like those times when, you know, you're out of team rerolls, you know, late in the game and you kind of need a desperation play in order to uh, make something happen. Having inbuilt rerolls is super valuable, even though, you know, Blood Bowl 2020, it incentivizes you, for example, in league play to load up in rerolls because you can, you know, just burn them, burn them, burn them as much as you need in a turn. And so you have a lot of incentive to build up rerolls on your roster. In tournament play, you don't have that option. You are limited in your team value and your roster construction. And you, you know, a lot of times you want to be spending that on star players or on, you know, positionals. Is that it, all you got for That's sure hands? all I've got for sure hands, Jake. What cool. Is your well, I am also sure on my side over here. Uh, sure feet, that is. Sure feet is another skill that, you know, is a inbuilt reroll type skill, right? One of the most underrated things in Blood Bowl is movement. It's true that you don't necessarily need movement in order to be a good competitive team. Just look at Dwarfs, for example. You know, they're lining up six or maybe more movement four players on the pitch when they deploy. And then the ones that are not movement four, you know, are most of them are movement five, and there's maybe a single movement six player. That being said, when you look at other teams, right? And specifically, I'm going to talk about this in the context of the team that I'm currently playing in League with Chaos Dwarves on the Bull Centaurs. You know, they've got Sprint Your Feet. 
And what SureFeet effectively allows you to do is in many ways, you can just treat your movement stat as being too higher than what it actually says. Because rushing is obviously something that you want to minimize. And you and I have talked a lot about risk management, Richard, right? For things like rushing to get players into positioning to allow other plays to happen, where it's like, oh, cool, well, I can rush this player there in order to give me the assist for the block. But oh, wait, I failed the rush roll and I had to burn my team reroll on it because now I'm committed to where if I don't burn the team reroll, I'm going to turn over and I don't even get to make the blitz that I wanted. But now, I don't have my team reroll available, so maybe I was better off, you know, not even putting the player there because effectively a two die block without a reroll versus a one die block with a reroll, they're not exactly the same, but they're very similar. And, you know, there's always the chance that maybe you don't need to burn the team reroll on the first uh, time you throw that single block die. So maybe a one die block is actually, you know, maybe the way you should go. Well, if you have sure feet, that kind of eliminates all of that. Now, the biggest limiting factor on sure feet is that it's an agility skill. So a lot of the players that you want to put it on are not necessarily the players that need it. When If I were to have sure feet on you know, my Chaos Dwarf lineman with guard, I would be over the moon ecstatic if they just had it built in because then you know that would mitigate their biggest weakness of their mobility, which limits their ability to get into places where they can leverage their guard skill and their tackle skill. However, there's definitely some places where you can leverage your feet. You know, we're talking about things like, you know, Skaven Gutter Runners or Undead slash Necromantic Ghouls, Werewolves, things that have access to agility on primaries and are already pretty quick. You can make their mobility even more at the cost of a single primary skill that is very, very reliable. You know, it adds reliability to them. And reliability is such an important thing in Blood Bowl because if your players are not reliable, then in those times where you need to try and get, try to generate the one turn touchdown with your Skaven team, if you've got the sure feet, got a runner, then that hugely increases your chances of success. Well, maybe more specifically, it hugely decreases your chances of failure, which is just another way of saying the same thing. But as every Blood Bowl player knows, like if you can have something fail, if you can have that go for it into the end zone fail, when you're out of team rerolls and the game's on the line, it's gonna fail. Now, Surefeed's not perfect, but it takes a one in six chance of failure into a one in 36 chance of failure, which I'm not a statistics major. I got a C in stats in college, but I do know that that's a much lower percent chance of failure being one in 36 versus one in six. Yes, it is. Uh, unless Nuffle hates you, in which case it's 100% to fail, but there's nothing you can do about that. To add on to your thoughts, so you covered Surefeed on offense really well, where it mitigates your risk on desperation plays at the end of half and it makes having to spend a reroll on something earlier less punishing on defense specifically and this is the reason i'd consider playing it on an amazon blitzer it allowed one of the reason chaos horse is such a good team is the bull centaurs allow you to set the t tempo on defense if your opponent leaves you a hole into their backfield then you can just run nine into their backfield and say, okay, next turn I'm going to blitz whoever I want. So it allows you to set the tempo of the game on defense because 
most surefeet models will be moving nine or eight in a block on their blitz. And that's a huge advantage uh, when your only commitment is, okay, instead of having to consider spinning a team reroll, it's I move until I fail a rush and then I surefeet and then I stop where I'm at. Yep. And that's one thing I commonly find myself doing on, you know, sprint surefeet players specifically like bull centaurs is well i want to get myself ideally i'd like to get myself there but i will just keep on going until i have to use my sure feet skill and then i'm not going to push it any further because i don't want to invite failure and that's one thing i think is really important on the sprint sure feet combo whereas if you are like combining the two of them to get the three go for it's with the reroll on one of them that unless you need to maybe try and limit your limit your overall risk there yeah reliability is always a plus in blood bowl and then the risk management like which is that's our thoughts on sure feet um unless you had anything else jake no uh just that uh i guess my one thought on sure feet is like i don't think i would ever pay the 40k cost for it like a full cost primary skill on sure feet on a player but if i were to roll it you know if i'm if i'm gonna roll up a random secondary skill and choose like agility skills you know there's a lot of players in which i would want dodge there but if i were to roll up sure feet on you know a lot of players in the game i'd be perfectly content with that like i'd be pretty happy to get sure feet on a lot of players in the game if i'm playing something like orc um if i've got like a blitzer and i already have like a, maybe i already have a couple advancements on orc blitzers right i've got like a tackle one i've got a mighty blow one i've got a frenzy one well maybe i go for a random secondary on my fourth one a random agility and if i get dodge cool i've got a blodger that's awesome. But if I get sprint, I've got one with more mobility. If I get one with sure feet, I've got one more with reliable mobility. So I think paying like 20k for a secondary skill sure feet as a random roll is a super good outcome to a random agility skill. I mean, I could go into like maybe at some point we can break down like random rolling skills in a league format. But my long story short there is, is that agility is probably the category that I'd be most willing to reach for random skills in. Yep, you do get the most utility skills, um, especially if you have the ability to become a catcher. Um, the one question I do have for you on this is, would you ever take sprint before taking sure feet? Um, I would say that the place where I would consider that is on a Skaven Gutter Runner because it makes the one-turn touchdown um, a lot easier. You know, they've, they've eliminated the automatic one-turn touchdown by capping movement at nine. So you can't, you used to be able to combo like getting a plus one movement advancement with sprint to be able to move 13 squares and get a one-turn touchdown without having to do any sort of chain pushes. But now what you have is that if you, uh, if you have a sprint gutter runner, you only need to chain push them one time which could be the result of just like two blocks, one of them in order to get somebody like back into your lines, and then another time to chain push your gutter runner. Because the one turn touchdown with Skaven, one of the big weaknesses is actually just knocking over the player that you're trying to uh, that you're trying to push. So definitely helps out with making a Skaven one turn touchdown, you know, just that much more reliable. So that's where I would go for sprint first before sure feet. But if it's like something like a, if it's like a, like a necromantic werewolf, once I've got block and dodge on that thing, there's a, you know, I might very well consider sure feet on one of those guys. There's definitely a place for sure feet 
inst- you know, as opposed to like something like sidestep. Or if I have like a like an elf catcher, for example, you're already movement eight. You're probably not going to play for the one turn touchdown game with like an elf catcher, either high elf or you know what elf. They're both movement eight. But if you put sure feet on them, then you make that two turn touchdown from ten squares away really really reliable. Thanks for that, Jake. Yeah, for sure. So. Those are our thoughts on some skills we think that we should see more but don't necessarily see enough. And then to wrap, our local Blood Bowl League will be doing a green league in the offseason, which is a league where you take it, you cannot redraft a team, and it's effectively a long preseason with the goal of allowing you to redraft your green league team into the next season of league. Right. So last uh, offseason, I should say, between our seasons 9 and season 10, we had a sevens league, which neither one of us took part in, I think just with our schedules and stuff, but I'm definitely looking forward to taking part in the green league. As our current league is, you know, getting close to wrapping up, we've got, I think you and I both have three more games left of the uh, regular season and then playoffs after that, which I think the maximum number of playoffs games is like four, maybe five in the in the people that don't make the upper playoff bracket, something like that. I think you'll uh, get to experience more of the playoffs than I will, Jake. <laughs> we'll see. Um, I am already locked in on the on like the upper tier of the playoffs, basically the way our league is set up. And one of these days, we're going to have our league commissioner, Phil Ponzer, on the podcast to talk about successfully running a league because we have a 24 team league which is crazy we have four six team divisions and like the top two teams from each division go to like the upper playoffs and then every other team goes to a consolation playoffs um so there'll be like a 18 playoff and a 16 team playoff is my math right yeah my math's right on that so i think that the 16 team playoff will have one more it'll have four rounds instead of the three rounds that the eight team playoff will have so either way we're looking at a max of like seven more games so we're getting close to the end so for our green league one of the things that's nice about this is that you know it's very casually set up where it's like cool just like play games on your own schedule you know just see who wants to get games in but the way the green league is also set up is that like you can only like play your team and the green league up to a certain uh team value maximum which i'm not sure that philip has completely fleshed out the rules for the green league yet but if you like get to that point fairly early on with a team and you're just like well um i'm just gonna make a new team now because i don't like the way that this team is developed you could do that and then you know when you get into the actual like season 11 coming in you know this coming february which is what like three months from now you could maybe decide which team you want to redraft into that league so what are you planning on starting off first oh gosh you would ask me that um I think at this point, I've narrowed it down to four different options. And a couple of these options are more like, I don't know, like more like serious options than others. High Elf is one of them, just because I wouldn't mind playing a more agile team after playing a very bashy team. And our league tends to be very bashy. So, you know, playing something with a little bit more of the finesse game might be kind of entertaining to be, you know, the quote unquote breath of fresh air. Although I'm not sure people would be all that happy to see elves of any stripe. I don't know. But high elves have the best passing game of any of the elf teams. I know that elf union has the, uh, the awesome nerves of seal catchers. But the thing that the high elf team has is they've got the, uh, the throwers that have the two up passing plus pass plus safe pass, making them just 
stupidly reliable passers and like their catchers are still movement eight with the catch skill um and the cool thing is is that like all of their linemen are you know armor nine up like dark they're basically exactly like dark elf linemen so you get a little bit more i guess protection against the bash game that seems to be pretty common in our local leagues um i don't know if i want to do high elves or not because once again elves gross um i'm kind of considering lizard men uh these leagues that we have are a high number of games like um i think richard what are we at now as far as games played we had two preseason games then we had five divisional games and we've already had like so we're at 10 games and we've got three more to go so like a lizardman team by the time it's gotten to like 10 to 12 games is going to be frighteningly developed i'm really glad that there's not more lizardman teams in our league because the one Lizardman team in our league I've already played against, so I don't have to worry about dealing with that now that he's gotten like gar or block on like all of his Saurus and has started skilling up all of his skinks and stuff. I don't know if I want to like go that hard though, I guess, because I feel like that's a team that like, you know, by the time the, the league gets going, you're really, you know, got a powerhouse team. Uh I've always wanted to play Necromantic in a league. It seems like there's a billion different ways you can develop like werewolves into like crazy dynamic players in a league. So Necromantic is definitely on my radar. And the last one that I'm kind of considering, and I, I, we haven't really talked about this yet, Richard, but I'm kind of considering vampires. That's interesting. I'm not sure I can do that. So I was kind of looking at it as like, well, you know, I don't necessarily want to go with like a, I don't want to go with a tier one team really. But at the same time, like having something that has like potential to be really good, like vampires can be very good if you have pro on all of them and stuff. So like, I was thinking about like starting it out with just like five rerolls and three vampires and filling out the team with thralls. And just really focusing on like skilling up a couple of vampires at a time, looking for pro as my first advancement, and then maybe it looking at like as far as redrafting the team into the actual league season, being able to potentially like start a league with just like five or six pro vampires. I was like, that kind of seems like it'd be a lot less rough of a start than trying to just like start them from scratch in a league no that's a good point um so you're not locked into um you're not locked into them for a full season of league if you don't have fun with them personally i'm not a fan of starting a new team in the middle of a league unless you're having a really bad go of it and even then i'd probably stick it out for the rest of the league so doing that in a green league lets you play vampires get a feel with the team because i think vampires are fun it's just they're not very good at all it's the um, lack of reliability it's the ogre yeah. problem yeah it's the ogre problem and also you kill your own team yeah so one interesting thing is uh the one thing i would be a bit wary about on vampires is i think you'd end up at um high a higher team value than other teams in the league because you'll have one or two vampires on the bench if you have more than three vampires uh because i'm not sure you want more than that on the field i think it um, depends on where they're skilled up and how many team like if i get to a point where i have like six team rerolls i'd put six vampires that all have pro on the pitch that's fair but you're right like at the point where you have you know at the point where you have six vampires six thralls and like six rerolls you know you're talking like at the point where you're like six vampire blitzers, six thrall linemen, and six team rerolls, 
Uh, and if you have like pro on all your vampires, that right there is like 1440. So yeah, that's a lot. And like, realistically speaking, you're going to have like a few other skills scattered around too. So you're probably going to be around like a 1500 TV at that point. But like, you know, that's talking like, you know, late in the season going into the playoffs. Right. And so I don't feel like that TV is too outrageous. It's not because one of the things I was chatting with a couple of the folks from Jacksonville, they mentioned they have a really good vampire player locally. And that player spent so much time with the team where they understand how to set up where they don't actually have to move their vampires other than as the hypno gaze and then as the blitz. So they're reducing their risk there. Yeah, that would be really cool to be able to do something like that. I don't know. I am unsure. And I, you know, oh, I should mention also, Richard, that uh, we now have a Facebook page, right? So I might throw if we can, you know, get a little bit of a following on our Facebook page. Maybe we uh, we throw up like a poll. Maybe I'll throw up a poll on our Facebook page and ask our listeners, you know, all probably like two or three of them, if it's even that many, what they think I should play. Yeah, no, a poll would be a fun way to do that. Maybe I'll even throw goblins on there since now I have all the goblin secret weapons. You do have all the goblin secret weapons and goblins are fun to play. God, playing an entire league with goblins sounds miserable, though. But that's why the Green League is nice, because if you find out it's actually that miserable, then you just bounce after the Green League. True. You do make a good point. Um, What you're playing in Green League is going to come as probably no surprise to people. Yes, it turns out that when I've spent uh, a pile of money on Forge World for Amazon Star Players, I am in fact going to play Amazons in League. So I am looking forward to playing Amazons in Green League, specifically because it will allow me to be creative with my Blitzers. Because if I get skills on my Blitzers, I can be creative. I can develop one into a catcher. I can develop one into a foul bot. And then if I don't like that, I can fire them before the season starts and start with two new fresh Blitzers. Um, right. And the blocker. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, one of the important things about like redrafting a team, right, is that when you go through the redrafting process, there will be like a gold cap for what you can redraft a team to. I think we're doing like 1300, if I remember correctly. Yeah. But yeah. like, when you redraft a team, you have to pay uh, gold for each player that you want to redraft in from your like last season's team list. And it's like 20K gold pieces for each previous season that the player's taken part in. So to redraft a player from the Green League into the like season 11 team, it's going to be whatever their cost is plus 20 K. Ideally what you probably want to do is like pick like four or maybe five players that are like your people that you want to redraft and then have all the rest of them be rookies. So in an Amazon team, there's like exactly five players that you actually care about, right? It's like your two blockers, your two blitzers, and then like either your thrower or maybe like a particular lineman who's rolled up like a really good set of like randoms or something like that. Yeah, you're you're carrying the blockers in because your MVP is blocker, blocker, blitzer, or thrower until the end of time. Which to clarify that, our leagues, uh, we go with the uh, option that uh, Tour Play lets you do where you can nominate three players and then it picks the MVP from among those three. So, you build up your blockers uh so your blockers will they're 110 base so your blockers are hopefully going to cost you 170 going into season because you'll hopefully have block and guard already um and then the blitzers you experiment with a bit and then the thrower needs to have sure hands or leader by the time the season starts and then you're looking to be in a really good place you know you think of like a typical amazon starting roster and then if you're redrafting five players there's 100k just on the hiring fee And so that gives you like 200K of like skills effectively. 
which is like 10 skills. So if you have like two skills on each one of your blockers, two skills on each one of your blitzers and like two skills on your thrower, then like, boom, right there. That's like your 13 K redraft cost. Yep. Um, I will say one thing I'm interested to see with Amazon's in league is if I end up choosing to distribute the ball more, because normally um, when I'm playing them in a tournament game, the thrower has the ball until it's time for somebody else to go score. Mm-hmm. And that's usually a blitzer just because they're speed seven. But you're very interested in having your blockers get touchdowns for star points in league. It's just not that difficult to do, considering that they are agility three up with dodge players. Nope, it's not that hard at all. Turns out all of the Amazons are good ball carriers. Well, um, as far as league discussion goes, uh, do you want to just maybe finish all this up with a quick wrap up of maybe like how our league seasons are going right now? Uh, Sure. So where are you at at this point, Richard? I know you are in a very close race to be able to uh, secure your spot into the upper uh, playoffs you have you do have uh, a chance still i do have a chance i am going to be playing some very greedy and aggressive blood Bowl because i need to win out and i need the person ahead of me to not lose out but lose or draw out assuming i win all my games yeah so you've had a lot of draws to, i have had a lot of draws i finally took my first loss against a 1620 tv chosen team last week which was a sad time yep uh, the good news is, is that even if you don't make the upper playoffs, if you're in the, you know, like the consolation playoff brackets, there's still glory to be had winning a 16 team playoff. And I feel like your team will be really, really well positioned to do very well in that. Like Norse tend to be a team that does better at low TV, but like you're keeping your TV nice and lean. So you'll be able to hire, you know, star players like hack Flem or Morgan Thorg, um, to really help you out in the playoffs against some of these teams that are a little more bloated. How has your season gone so far, Jake? Um, it's gone very well. Uh, I've played eight games in the season. I've won eight games and uh, my current touchdown differential is uh, 15 to one. Unfortunately, I gave up a single touchdown. It happens, but um, I have already secured my spot in the upper playoffs. So at this point, I'm kind of thinking get into the playoffs healthy. My second thought is it sure would be nice to get into the playoffs as like the number one overall seed so that I could play like the number eight overall seed in the first round. Um, or just also like that I can have the bragging rights and being able to say that like, hey, cool, I was completely, you know, undefeated in the regular season. Um, the downside to that, all this is, is that I have a very tough stretch of games coming up. Um, I've got a game against uh, a gentleman named Casey who has developed a very frightening black work team uh, that has like four of his black works have guard at this point. And uh, he's got block on his troll. He's got, you know, stuff like uh, like a sneaky get hobgoblin or a goblin bruiser. He's got like four rerolls. So he definitely has a very well-built black work team. So a little worried about my, uh, my chances of coming out unscathed from that game. I believe Casey has also inflicted the most casualties, or I should say specifically, I believe Casey has inflicted the most deaths of any player in the league so far. I'm I'm hoping that I don't... My, my goal on that one, realistically speaking, is like if I could get a draw with zero like missed next game or worse injuries, then I will consider that like 
more than acceptable of a result out of that one. But I'm definitely going to be prioritizing not allowing my players to get killed. So we'll see. So I wish you luck in the rest of your league games. I will probably trying to do dumb stuff to create fun moments in my Blood Bowl games. And I look forward to that. You know, the nice thing is, is that like you reach a point of like Blood Bowl's in in your like league where it's just like, cool, at this point, like what's going to happen? It's going to happen at this point. So let's just, you know, go wild and crazy with it. Yeah, it's just like and you create like fun little challenges. It's like, OK, well, it's like, what's the biggest thing my Valkyries can actually kill or things like that? Just fun little moments, Um, which is just the thing I like about Blood Bowl. You get like both people at the table are excited for a cool moment that might not happen to happen which is not something you see in a lot of tournaments. Like in a lot of other games, like somebody will have a cool thing happen and their opponent will immediately get pissy. Where I had a really cool moment in my game against Pox where he tried to foul Glottal and didn't break armor with a bunch of models next to him. But one of those is his Rad Ogres. It's like, okay, Glottal stopped, declares a move action. And it's this epic moment where if I stand up and I knock down this Blodge Rad Ogre, it's insane value for me. Um, and I didn't end up getting it, but it was just a crazy moment that both people at the table were excited about. And I think that's neat that it happens in Blood Bowl when it doesn't happen in other games. Yeah, for sure. There's something about the people in Blood Bowl, I think, that is one of the reasons why it's a uh, very great game is that there just needs to be a different attitude. You know, I I, I credit it partially to the fact that we get to sit down for two or three hours instead of stand up. Yes, yeah, sitting down is definitely a part of it. And I think the variance helps keeps it under control because you have to be able to handle very high variance and unfun things happening to you to continue playing Blood Bowl. That's fair. Well, this episode definitely came in a little longer, I think, than what we uh, are trying to shoot for. Um, that being said, like I think we had some really good content in this one, and uh, I hope that our listeners get a lot out of it. Yep, it was a good time, and we will see you all in the next episode of Riotous Rookies. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And uh, until the next time we get together, just remember, Bomber Dribble Snot is the most fun player in Blood Bowl. <laughs>